have uh, some um, announcements here on what's happening in the church this week. Uh, this singles ministry is meeting on a Wednesday night for our midweek. We're on part four of our series called Inside Matters on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, they have a costume uh, dance party uh, this Friday. And then the teen ministry has a costume party with uh, both regions uh, up on the west side of the Culver City Senior Center at 7 uh, that same night, Friday night. Then the family ministries in small groups doing family devotionals. And uh, if you want to do community service this Saturday, uh, the Silverado Assisted Living for the Elderly, people with memory loss. Uh, there's uh, dog therapy where you can bring your dog or you can just come visit with the elderly is this Saturday. And then finally, next Sunday, uh, we, instead of being here, we'll be at uh, Torrance Park at 11 a.m., not 10 a.m. And we have our Harvest Fest with games and fun and our church service and a picnic and a costume party for the kids and the dogs, which is exciting. All of it. Um, so a lot of great things happening in the church on, for you. And I just wanted to let you know, if you're visiting, uh, these are some things that are happening this week. And if you're a member, um, letting you know as well. Okay, today we're closing out our series uh, called Love Works. And uh, today is the topic of dedicated. And, um, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 has kind of been the premise of our uh, study. We got the idea from the book Love Works. The guy you saw, that was an undercover boss, wrote that book, Love Works, and took principles from 1 Corinthians 13 and has tried to apply it to the corporate culture in their company. And uh, the bottom line is, in 1 Corinthians 13.8, the Bible teaches that love never fails. And a lot of times we don't know what to do. I would say often, more than often, more than most times, we don't know what to do. You go, with what? With this situation. But the Bible teaches that love never fails. It doesn't teach you how to change your tire, but it does teach you how to deal with your boss. It doesn't teach you how to fix something in your house, but it does teach you how to get along with your spouse or your kids. It doesn't teach you a lot of practical things that just day in, day out, but it does teach you the most important thing, which is the relational side of getting along with people, and that's what makes Jesus so powerful. Here's the seven qualities that we went over so far. Patient, kind, trusting, unselfish, truthful, forgiving last week, and today, dedicated. And I don't know how you are, but as I look at these, it's a bit overwhelming. Yeah? You go, who can be like that? Jesus and Lisa Payne. Uh... But really, you, you, you kind of think, I don't know, that's kind of what comes up for me is like, wow, how, do you, how can you be that way? Really. You can read it, it sounds good, but then to live it is incredibly challenging. And the only thing that came back to me was daily dependence on God. Not just in the morning. All day. Situation to situation. Lots of repentance. Lots of forgiveness given and needed, lots of self-examination, lots of God. Otherwise, we can't be one of these things. But I love what the passage says is that love never fails, or the title they use for the book, Love Works. You know, um, there's one of our presidents there on the screen. 
our second president of the United States, John Adams. And that was the last picture uh, made that he had made. His son, John Quincy, was president now at the time. The dad, I want, I want you to take one last picture. So, as you can tell, here he is, 89 years old. little trivia for you. He was the oldest living president that you know, lived. He died at 89 until Ronald Reagan, 175 years later, took the record at 91. But John Adams, 50 years earlier, at the Declaration of Independence, as he stood there in the House... And he signed the declaration. He said this with passion and a love for freedom and a love for his country. He says, sink or swim, live or die, survive or perish. I give my heart and my hand to this adoption, to this vote. The expression was derived from a speech by President Adams in favor of the adoption of the declaration of independence. And he said, the die was now cast. I've passed the Rubicon. Sink or swim, live or die, survive or perish with my country was my unalterable determination. You know, we are inspired by people that have such a passion and such a love for something that they're willing to be dedicated to it. I mean, who isn't inspired by Michael Phelps? I think it's four Olympics in a row. Most gold medals out of any Olympiad ever. I mean, you go, wow, what dedication. What a love for the sports. You know, John Adams, 50 years later to the day. He's on his deathbed, and he's woken up by the cannon celebrating the 4th of July. And him and Jefferson were had a falling out for many years, and they had now come back together and had become friends towards the end of their life. And a couple things that he said at the end of his life there on his last day, he said, is Jefferson still alive? And the ironic thing was, Jefferson had died that same day, just hours earlier, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And he thought he was still alive. And he said, there was a reporter there that asked him about the cause 50 years later. And when he was told it was Independence Day, he murmured in a feeble voice at 89 years old, Independence forever. And so the reporter asked him, Mr. President, thinking back, if you would, could change anything to the Declaration of Independence, would you change anything? And he said, not one word. Now, he said it more feeble than I just did. But I think if you were to ask the living God today, God, when you think about human beings and their needs, when you think about the problems of our world, past, present, and future, and when you think about your plan of sending Jesus, would you change anything on this mission of love? And God would say to us, not one word. Romans 5 talks about that God demonstrates His own love in this, that He sent Jesus. And you know, it's hard because we can't physically see God. He's not a physical being. Try to explain that one to your kids. So what is he? Dad? Is he a ghost or a spirit? Is he, you know? But we can't see God. It's we we can't make an image of God. But I'm so thankful that we can see God in Jesus. In John verse chapter one verse eighteen, he says, "No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who was at the Father's side, has made Him known." So we physically 
can't see God until we're with Him face to face. But while we're on this earth, we can see God. We can have direction for our lives. We can learn how to love in a way that's dedicated. And we can learn from Jesus. And we're going to do a study today out of John 13. But just like in the movies, sometimes they show a scene from the later part of the movie and then they come back to the beginning. You know what I'm talking about? Well, this is interesting. I had never seen this before. But if you could turn electronically in your Bible to Luke 22. We're going to do a study out of John 13. But I just want to show you this quick picture, this forward clip, this forward scene of the story, then we'll go back to the beginning of the story and we'll do a study there out of John 13. But Jesus had already shared the Passover meal. Jesus had already talked about being betrayed. Jesus had already washed their feet, and we're going to study that more in depth. And after all that, in Luke 22, verse 23, they began to question them among themselves which of them would do this, talking about the betrayal. And, and then a dispute arose among them to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Now, I want you to take extra special note to verse 27. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, to test you. Look what he says to him. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Or I should say, love your brothers. What a picture. Jesus is talking about being betrayed, going to the cross, dying. He washes their feet. And literally, they're now arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Jesus goes, hold it. You don't get it. I'm among you like a waiter. It's the person at the table that gets the honor that's being waited on. But I'm carrying the tray. And I've got the towel. And I'm filling the glass. And I'm honoring you. And I love how he says there at the end, he says, Peter, I prayed for you that you would be able to overcome and love, strengthen your brothers. What a dedication that Jesus had and what a dedication that Jesus called Peter to. Let's go to John 13 and do a study here out of this section in John 13. You know, John, the apostle, was the oldest living apostle. All the apostles were martyred early on, and John lived about another 30 years. He was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Many of you already know that. And as an old man, tradition has it that he would 
always talk about love. In fact, as an elderly person, they would carry him into church, the church in Ephesus, and in a feeble voice, with a broken body, he would just say, little children, love each other. Little, little children, love each other. He would just constantly tell everybody, love each other. And it's interesting because John, the Apostle John, in his book, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we can kind of look at that and go, that's kind of cute, that's kind of funny, or that's kind of interesting. That's how he calls himself. But there was an impression that Jesus had on him that made him feel secure and honored to where that's how he saw himself. That Jesus really loves me. And because of that, you see John, after everything he had been through and everything that he was tested by, he was emphasizing at the end of his life. Little children, love each other. Go read for fun First John the book of 1 John, or 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the books, and see how he talks about the power of love and how love works. In John 13, um, you know, you see this picture that you don't see in any of the other Gospels. It's kind of a surreal story. And if you read the book Love Works, Joel talks about at the last chapter and dedicated, he says, if I was Jesus... And it was my time to leave the earth. I'd be giving a strategy plan. I'd be hooking them up with the political leaders of the day so that they're connected. I'd be helping them figure out what resources do we have? How are we going to make this happen? I'd be doing a lot of different things. But Jesus, you see this picture that's supernatural, surreal. It says in John 13, verse 1, It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The word there, the full extent of his love, means he loved them until the last, or it means without limits. And so when we think about being dedicated We need to decide to put no limits on our love. I'm not talking about being codependent. That's unhealthy. I'm not talking about being in a toxic, abusive relationship where I just have to love and love and love and let people beat me up. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is it is challenging for every single person to love in different circumstances. Different circumstances of the age of our life, different circumstances of the age of our parents, different circumstances of the stage of our marriage, different circumstances of the stage of our children. Different, I mean, just I can go on and on. We're tested with the limits of our love over and over and over again. And the Bible says that having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them that there was no limits to his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and He was returning to God. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing and wrapped a towel around His waist. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. And He came to Simon Peter who said to Him, Lord, are You going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, 
You don't realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You know, we've learned a lot in the last six weeks, today being the seventh, about love. Things that we already knew and new things. Things that we need to be reminded of. But Jesus says, if we do these things, if we put them into practice, we'll be blessed. Yes, other people will be blessed, but we'll be blessed. You know, I have one point for you today. Decide to put no limits on your love. You say, why decide? Because sometimes you feel like it, and sometimes you don't. And a lot of love is decisions. It's not just from the heart, if you will. It's not just emotion. It's challenging. And you know, when you think about how the world looks at love, they're, they're obsessed with love. Romantic movies, popular songs, cheap paperback novels, all the tabloids. Romance is a primary theme in making money. But despite all the world's talk about love, very few people actually understand the real thing. The modern world's version of love is unabashedly narcissistic, totally self-focused, shamelessly manipulative, and it sees others merely as a means to self-gratification. Relationships between selfish people rarely ever last. And if a current partner fails to live up to expectations, people leave that one to find someone more exciting. In sharp contrast to that, the self-centered kind of love, the self-centered kind of love, the Bible teaches that the essence of love is self-sacrifice. Instead of tearing others down, which we've talked about in our series, biblical love seeks to build them up. Instead of pursuing our own good, biblical love pursues the good interests of others. Instead of seeking to have our needs met, the love of Jesus teaches us to meet the needs of others. It's so difficult, though. It really is. You know, I know most of you have heard this story in John 13 dozens and dozens and dozens of times. But I hope you can get some new things out of it. A couple things that stood out to me was Jesus' relationship with God. In verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that His time had come from to leave the world and go to the Father. That there was a closeness, there was an intimacy, there was a knowledge of God, an awareness of God that gave him a security to do things that were very difficult. 
Can you imagine the intense pressure of the foreknowledge that he knew that Judas was in the crowd, one of his closest friends, and had already sold him out, and had already been stealing, and had already decided, I'm taking this guy down. Could you imagine not wanting to take him down and kind of washing his feet as you're squeezing his toes? Or going, as you're, like, as you're washing his feet, just staring in his eye, really? Really? Could you imagine? I mean, I remember as a kid I got in trouble a lot. And the worst part was the waiting in the office for the principal. One time in junior high, I remember I was so nervous, I looked down and I could see my heart beating. Like, not like in the cartoons, but I could see literally like the vibration because I was so nervous because Mr. Ernstein spit when he talked and, and I was number seven of eight kids and he's like, Palazzari, another one! But I just remember that horrible imagery. I just remember how nervous I was like those 20 minutes, 40 minutes well, he'd walk in and out. He'd see me. He'd be like, oh, come on. And then he'd go back, I'll deal with you soon, you know. And I'd be just, just, could you imagine how Jesus felt knowing the next day he was going to the cross that not just Judas was going to betray him, but they all were? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd be having some self-focus issues right about then. I don't think I'd be wanting to be sharing the Last Supper. And if I did, I'd probably want to be crying on their shoulder. Do you know what I mean? like, there would be very little desire for me to be others-focused. Imagine the intense emotion he felt about taking on the sin of the world, dealing with the selfish ambition he felt in the room, the shallowness, the abandonment, being sold out. And what was interesting is in Jewish, in Jewish times, if there was no slave available to wash the feet, then the wife or children would do it, kids. But it was an affectionate thing. It was a respect and reverence. and a, It was an intimate thing. And so Jesus, there's no servant, there's no wife, there's no kids. He's, you know, some, one of the apostles should have volunteered. Nobody volunteers, and Jesus steps forward. Already had it in his mind, that's what he was going to do. And he starts taking on this role. What inner security... Verse 3, he says, He knew that the Father had put all things under his, po- under his power and that He had come from God and was returning to God. Verse 11, it says, He knew who was going to betray Him. I mean, what a relationship with God. That Jesus knew all these things. He was so tuned into God and so tuned into God's will that He was able to deal with His emotions and still love without limits. And it wasn't easy, because if you read a little farther down, they're having more discourse about betrayal, and I'll never leave you, and, and then the discourse with Judas that we'll look at in, in a moment. And then it says in verse, I think, 33, he says, my, after he knew Judas was going to betray him, and he kind of speaks to that, he says his soul was deeply troubled. What limits are you putting on your love? How about the betrayal? How challenging. You know, and all of us know the story, most of us, about Julius Caesar. He was assassinated in March 15th, 44 B.C. The most powerful man in the land. And he's 
They're in the Senate. While he's speaking, they start charging him. And they start stabbing him. And he tries to fight them off. And suddenly he sees Brutus, who was like a son to him. And he realizes, and you know the famous Latin, a tu Brutus, but he says, you too, Brutus? And so he just takes his cloak and he puts it over his head and just lets him stab him. I'm giving up. He was so overwhelmed with emotion about betrayal by Brutus, that he goes, all right, just kill me. Let it be done. Betrayal is a very challenging thing. Some of us have been betrayed deeply. Some of us have never been betrayed. But we can all kind of imagine what it would be like. Not, not accurately, but enough to go, it's rough. It's rough to be insulted by a friend. But to be betrayed by a friend? And this is what Jesus was going through. And as he, as he got involved and started taking off this cloak and putting the towel around his waist... They were shocked. What is he doing? How often do we surprise people by doing things that are so in the act of love that they wouldn't feel comfortable? I'm not just talking about washing our feet because that's not culturally... We have shoes now, though most people in California don't wear them. This is what they look like. Um, Rainbows are sandals. These are shoes. But it's not, we don't relate with that. But we do relate with the idea that he took on something that doesn't make sense. It's the lowest thing. And so when he comes to Peter and he says, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? No way! In John 1.27, John the Baptist said, Hey, this guy that's coming, Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Referring to washing feet. It was the lowest act of service. And I love what Jesus says. You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. What was he saying? He was saying, in time, you'll realize that it's not the feet washing, but it's the dedication of love that's going to turn on the whole world to knowing God. That it's the dedication of love that changes things. What a powerful story. You know, some observations from this passage. Jesus showed, Jesus showed them that greatness is loving in the lowest acts of service and the most difficult moments for us. Jesus showed them that, it says in 1 Samuel 2, that God stooped down to make us great. Jesus showed them. He didn't just tell them. He showed them that this is how God feels about us that in our lowest moments and our most difficult times to be loved, He still is dedicated to loving us without limits. Jesus showed them that even when it seems impossible, God can and will expand the limits of our hearts. Because Jesus was struggling, yet He still loved, it says there in the first part of John 13, with no limits. And Jesus showed them that this type of love would fuel supernatural sacrifice and change the world forever. You know, God allows us to be this kind of person. But we can't do it 
without each other. You know, we can't make our own struggles or other people's struggles make our hearts hard or too small to where we pull back. You know, I'm very challenged. Right when I went on leave, um, I don't know, maybe a month into it, I was talking with Michelle and had a very painful talk, challenging talk. And she said to me this, she says, Marco, I don't want to do this anymore with you in the ministry if you're not going to slow down and enjoy people and love people more. You're busy, you're working hard, you're helping a lot of people, but I want to enjoy people. And if you don't want to change that, then I don't want to do this with you. I'm like, wow. And she was right. I'd gotten too busy, working hard, doing a lot of good things, but lost the heart of a foot washer. Wasn't dedicated to love enough. Steve Marici and I had a talk about halfway through about our, our love and our friendship and how he felt about it and my level of love, level of love with him and other people. And it cut my heart, really challenged. And I repented. Now I initiate with Steve way more than he initiates with me. You talk to him about it. Puts all those limits on his... No, I'm kidding. But, but it was good for me to hear both those things. Sobering, painful, ugly, gut check, look in the mirror. But made me examine my Christianity and go, what am I in this for? Why am I in it? Where's my heart? How much love's in my heart? How dedicated am I really? What did I get baptized for? Why did I go into ministry? Where is do I still have the same heart today? You know, um, it's been a challenging week, and it's funny because all week long I'm like, man, I got to preach this stupid sermon now on love. I didn't call it a stupid. I didn't call it a stupid sermon, but just like, and I got that topic. Oh, terrible. I was helping Tally. I tried to take on more around the house just to help more. And um, I was helping Tally with their homework on Wednesday. And um, it was very challenging, not the homework, but helping her. And uh, I got, you know, frustrated and then got myself back frustrated. And got, it was taking forever. And I'm, you know, I'm just getting stressed out. She's like, Dad, take it easy. Maybe you need to pray. Dad, you're getting impatient. Not being very loving. Okay, I'm sorry for being impatient. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry for being unloving. You know, I'm saying it, but I'm still, like, struggling. And I was, you know, I was going to be late to church, and so my anxiety level's running, it's getting higher. And she's, like, getting her stuff together, and I'm just struggling. And so on the way there, she goes, Dad, pastor anxiety's on God because He cares for you. And it was in a, I taught her that verse, and it was in a comforting, loving, non-finger-wagging way. It was more of, hey, Dad, this might help you. And then she says, hey, Dad, would you like to pray? It seems like you need that right now. Um, would you like to pray or would you like me to pray first? I go, you can pray first. <laughs> and she said the sweetest prayer. And then she's like, Dad, I think you need to pray because you're a leader and everybody looks up to you as an example and you're going to have to get yourself in a good space before you get to church. But again, it wasn't judgmental or out of line. It was just endearing. 
So two days later, I go into my office, and she had taken those two, those little sticky notes that are really, like, micro sticky notes, and she put, like, cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you, for you, love telling. Very thankful. You know, I think about, while I was on the leave, I, I was so sad at times that, I lost a lot of my love for the lost. I didn't have much left over. And the poor. And anyone else. And I remember Danny talking to me one day, going, Dad, what happened to you? Like, what are you talking about? It's like you lost your mojo. Don't you love how your kids just are like... I said, what do you mean? She goes, Mom's evangelizing more than you by far. And I'm going for it? But what happened? This is like what used to be your strength. And I said, Danielle, can I just struggle for a few months, okay? I mean, can you give me a break? I have a good track record for a number of years. Can I just have a few months to be weak? All right. But you lost your mojo, Dad. you got to get it back. So you can ask her if it's back. Um, you know, and, and I just found myself getting impatient different times this week, and and Danny handling herself better than me. And I, and I felt really down. Like, what? I thought I was farther along than this. And I love how God encouraged me about the value of dedication. Danny called me on the phone and she says, Dad, I was going through all my old baby pictures. And she goes, wow, Dad, you were kissing me a lot and throwing me up in the air a lot and holding me a lot. And you took me to a lot of places that I didn't even, don't even remember. I said, yeah, I have. Dad, you've really loved me a lot. Thank you so much, you know, all these pictures. And... Uh, she goes, even though I don't remember, you've laid a good foundation. And then she goes, Dad, I found this card. And I didn't even remember writing this card, but I wrote this card uh, in 96, two days before she was born, to Michelle. I said, Michelle, I wanted to give you this card, talking about just being dedicated with love. I'll let you know how special you are to me. I love you and I'm so appreciative for you. I'm so grateful to be able to enter this next incredible part of our lives together. I want you to know that I'm here for you, for the baby, and will be committed and a great dad to you and your daughter. Our daughter. Thank you for the past four years we've been married. That was a, not a typo, it was my mouth. Thank you for the past four years. They've been so incredible and I'm so blessed to have shared them with you. I look forward to eternity with you. I love you. You're amazing. And I look forward to our family, as the Bible says, being a light shining in a dark place. I love you, Mark. And then I wrote a letter to Danielle that I didn't even remember. 20 or whatever, 17 years ago. Dear Danielle, I know someday you'll be able to read this. I want you to know your mom and I are going to love you, teach you, and be an incredible example of a marriage. I can't wait to build so many more memories with you. You're amazing. Love your dad. And it was just so encouraging. She goes, Dad, she read it to me on the phone. You know, tears in my eyes. She goes, Dad, I'm crying. I said, me too. But I just, it encouraged me how the dedication pays off. Even when you're feeling sometimes at your lowest moment or feeling weak. And I want you to ask yourself, what is your love limits where you will go only this far? I will love to this point and no more. In John 13, 27 and 28, we didn't read that, but it says as soon as he was talking about being betrayed, they said, who's going to betray me? He says, the one I hand the bread to will. And as soon as Judas took the bread, look at the verse, Satan entered into And Jesus said, what you're about to do, do quickly. 
the fact that Jesus could love Judas at that moment blows my mind. And the fact that Judas had free will and could at any point just gotten convicted, and, but somewhere along the line, he stopped loving. And, it made it, and Judas made it about him. Judas wasn't picked because he was the evil betrayer and they needed a bad actor. Judas was picked because he had a good heart at one time. He was one of the twelve. He had a purpose. His purpose changed when he put limits on his love and he got jealous and he got greedy and he made it about him and he stopped being open. And he was in that whole crowd, not connected to the brothers. Everyone, if you read another gospel version, they said, well, who is it, Lord? Who's going to betray you? And they all went around, all twelve. Surely not I, Lord. Not me. You? Not me. Judas? Not me. But somewhere along the line, he drew a limit in his love to where he could not love anymore and he made it about him. The point, his heart was so hard that Jesus looked him right in the eye and said, the one I hand is bread to And then Satan entered in him as he accepted the bread. What's your love limits? I wrote down some challenging ones for me. When people are unloving, it's hard for me to be loving back. When people are unappreciative, hold on, that's a tough one. Especially if it's repetitive unappreciation with some demands combined and challenging you about something in it all. Or when people aren't changing or stuck, it can be challenging for me and probably you to love. I think when we're overwhelmed by our own personal needs, family's needs, ministry needs, job needs, health needs, emotionally or physically, it's hard to love. When I'm tired and like super tired, boy, it's really hard for me to love. My, my limit, my line just goes really short instead of expanded. And I think thirdly, when the sacrifice to love feels too great for me, and the needs are too high. It makes it very challenging for me to love. You know, how do you expand your limits? I'm going to share the story here in closing. How do you expand your limits? Number one, examine what your limits are. And examine your security in your relationship with God. And be willing to ask the question, why? Why does this bother me so much? Why do I pull my heart back here? Why is this repetitive for me? What's the reason? Versus just going after the reaction or being guilty about the reaction, ask yourself the deeper question, how is my security with God? And why is this bothering me? Why is this a limit for me? Number two, commit yourself to prayer, fasting, and studying out the Word in these areas where you've got limits. You say, why? Because God changes our minds. God changes our emotions. God changes our strength. I was fasting the other day for my family, my marriage and family and dynamics. And I had like, by the end of the day, I was irritable from fasting, you know, and hungry and tired and, and not very godly. And I'm like, oh my gosh, God, I'm, I'm praying and I'm fasting. I need you even more. But you know, I know God sees the effort. And God honors when we're dedicated to trying to grow in our limits. Thirdly, and finally, ask for help. 
Be willing to ask for help. Hey, this is a challenge for me. Would you help me? And not just ask for help, but share vulnerably about how you're doing. You know, I want to close with this story, and then we're going to take communion, and I have a verse for us to meditate on during communion. But this is a famous story. It was made into a movie in spring of 2001. The guy on my left, Ken Waters, walked out of prison after and slept in his own bed after his first time in 19 years. Ken Waters was sentenced to life in prison after being convicted in a first-degree murder in Massachusetts. Devastated, his sister, Bet Ann Waters, was convinced of her innocence and refused to accept the outcome of her trial. She was a single mother of three, and Bet went to law school as a single mom of three for the express reason to represent her brother. Didn't have the money, didn't have the wherewithal, but was determined, my brother's innocent. And she went to law school, and after studying recent convictions overturned by DNA evidence, she scoured the courthouse to see, after all these years, was there any DNA evidence left from her brother's original trial? She knew it was a long shot because most evidence is destroyed after ten years. Her heart was pounding as she awaited the response from the courthouse clerk, and within minutes she was informed the DNA evidence was still intact. There was only one question with the DNA evidence exonerate her brother. The testing followed clearly showed that it was not Ken Waters' DNA and Waters was made a free man. It was an emotional scene as Ken's mother, sister, Bet Ann, wept and embraced him. Though costly, Bet's devotion helped free her brother. It was worth every bit of sacrifice, she said. Quote, It's been half of my life exactly. She said after the brief court hearing, I'm still very emotional. I can't quite feel that it's over. It's been a long 20 years. Look at the love. Look at the look on her brother's face. Look at the love a sister. And then let's be a people that decide. And As in 1 John 4, you can meditate on this as you pray. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought, doesn't say we will, but we ought, to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Beautiful morning. Thank you that we can be called so high by Jesus' example there uh, at the, the night before he was to be betrayed and be crucified. Father, I can't wrap my brain around how he did it other than it's supernatural and it's through you. Thank you that Jesus was such a great example, yet so human and so just struggled and wrestled so much. Help us have hope in that and help us be a people that decide to put no limits on our love and to keep getting back up and getting back up and getting back up. And like the passage says right there, God, that people could see you, the invisible God, visibly in us when we put no limits on our love. Bless the bread and the juice as we reflect on the amazing thing that happened at the cross and we take communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen.